take a look at uh, soteriology, which is the study of salvation. It's the study of salvation. And uh, before we start, I thought that I wanted to just kind of bless you with something. So just relax and watch this presentation of the Nicene Creed. I think you'll enjoy it. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. Church. I say bishops because 
the way the early church organized itself, every church had elders that were over the local church. But every city had a chief elder, that elder was called a bishop. And what he did was he just made sure that everyone was on the same page with theology, with the faith that had been delivered to them by the apostles. And all those bishops and all those head elders from all those different cities came together in Constantinople, and I see, I'm sorry, and they formulated this statement of faith. So we've been using this same statement for over 1,700 years. And it's worked so far. <laughs> so that's good. So the soteriology um, is about mankind's redemption. And I, and I just want to say that every aspect of salvation is about God. You know, it's his idea. Okay? Uh, it's, it's, so it's his idea, it's his plan. And he accomplished it. And then he's applying it. So the only part that we get to play in it is the benefit of it. Actually being blessed by it. Uh, so it's really fascinating, fascinating. So soteriology is the study of salvation. There have been different theologians over the millennia who have had varying perspectives on God's grace to save. So they've had different ideas about uh, God's grace and about what salvation looks like. The last thing we talked about the last time was salvation is God's sovereign plan and scope. We had those eight different things that salvation were actually saved from. You know, it's not just like saved from the wrath of God. We're saved from first generation. We're saved from our own sin. We're saved from being lost. We're saved from people who steal our faith. We're saved through things. We're saved out of things. So you know, it's a there's a, a big bundle that comes with our salvation that sometimes we just don't pay too much attention to, and it's well worth it. Uh, salvation. Uh, we're going to look at the part that God accomplished today. We're also going to look at how we applied what He accomplished. So, getting back to the scope of salvation, here are the eight things that we talked about. We're saved from our sin, saved from being lost, we'll always know where we're going, Jesus is the way. So he's the path. Yes, George? Uh, yes, right at the back there, there should be papers on the, uh, on the table. Little up, little table right by the box. We're saved from tribulation. Now, I had a question last week. Um, someone asked me after the class, would, you know, we're saved from uh, wrath, but yet we have all these horrible things happening, wars happening. Uh, but wrath is about God's judgment against the unrepentant sin. Okay? It's not about his anger towards people who believe. You know, with people he believes, he chastens. But it's his law. Because he's trying to correct us. He's trying to get us back on the Jesus road again. Um, tribulation, we all go through tribulation because we live in a fallen world. We are fallen, you know. Uh, we get shingles. <laughs> you know, it happens. I mean, because it's like things, things happen. But the thing about tribulation is that God saves us through the tribulation. It's kind of like, you know, Psalm 23, it's through the valley. You know, it's not into the valley, it's through the valley. So, 
Uh, he saves us from robbers and thieves who want to steal, kill, and destroy our faith. He saves us from judgment. We're never going to be judged. Now, our works will be judged and we'll be rewarded for the things that you know, we obey. But we're not going to be punished for their disobedience. Because God punished one of his kids. He's never going to punish another one of his children again. Uh, and these were saved from a perverse generation. <clears throat> you know, in our, in our world, we can pick up a lot of junk and not realize it. God is saving us from that. He makes us aware of it. He brings people around us. He compares what we're doing to his word. And he gets us to clean, cleanse us like washing our feet. Like washing our feet. Um, of course, we're served, uh, saved from God's wrath, we talked about, and we're saved for So let's take a look at soteriology again. It's the study of salvation. There have been different theologians over the millennia who have had varying perspective on man's spiritual condition and God's grace to save. And we're going to take a look at some of those individuals. The first one we're going to take a look at is a guy by the name of Pelagius. Pelagius was a fifth century monk, so he lived in the 400s. And uh, he believed that each person has within them a spark of life. Because he believed that uh, the image of God that we all have, okay, uh, has that spark of recognizing goodness. And, and that is not diminished in any of us. Um, and so that enables them to choose good and not sin. So, if we don't have a choice, because he thought if we don't have a choice not to sin, then sin is excusable. So, in other words, if we can't afford sin, that's just where we are. Why God's mad at us? Well, the reality is, he's angry with sin. He's angry with what happened in the Garden of Eden. And it's been passed down to all of us. We're all Adam's and Eve's. We all will choose against him. And so uh, he's, he's a, a monk that was in England. And so he thought that God's grace is not needed for perfection and salvation. In other words, you can be good enough. And God will let you in heaven. Alright? Because he has left this spark of light in you that enables you to, uh, to know what's good and to do what's good. Here's the big thing. Here's the big problem. The standard is not good. It's not about being good. The standard is holy. And that means perfect. And God just flat out says, no one is holy. So we are in a mess. We're in big trouble without God. So he's in England, all right? The you know, northwestern Europe on that island out there. And then the word about his teaching gets all the way down to Hippo, which is east of Alexandria, Egypt, where Augustine is. And Augustine is like, whoa, wait a second. I mean, this is happening, you know, I mean, this is how tight the church is. You know, you stop to think about it. This is how connected the church was back then. I mean, someone way over here says something, writes something about it, and it spreads and gets all the way to this. To Egypt, where the church, some of the church leaders are at. 
So Augustine says this. He says, I refute that assertion. He said uh, that he reasoned from his own personal experience and scripture that indeed he could choose to that, I'm sorry, that indeed he could choose to sin or not, but the choice, even when apparent and good, was still to sin. He couldn't avoid sinning. He couldn't avoid not sinning. And so uh, he, like the Bible, agreed that even our righteous deeds are as dirty rags to a holy God, and that the only freedom we have, uh, the only yes that we have is to sin. Let me say this this way. Remember, I, I talked about how in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had a complete choice to say yes or no to God. Right? So, the problem was, is that, well, let's say the good thing was, yes, was always being blessed by God, always in communion with God, but as soon as we said no, it would cause our death. And the thing that died immediately, certainly, the day that you say no to me, Jesus, God said, uh, that that you will not surely that day. Well, what died in us right away was the spirit. The spirit that had a connection, the ability to connect with God. And that communion was broken. And so coming out of the Garden of Eden now, the only choice we had was to say, no to God, with God, without God interceding to give us the grace to say yes to him. Okay? So all we can do now is fall in preaching to say no to God. And then along comes Jesus. He dies for all of our no's. And he gives us back, through faith in him, the ability to say yes to God again. Because he gives us the grace to say yes. To say yes by faith to receive Jesus. To say yes to, to loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To say yes to loving our neighbor as Jesus loved us. We can say yes again because of the grace given to us. But here's the other miracle. We can say no and not die. The cross is so powerful, so pure, so overwhelmingly grace-filled that now even his children can say no to him and not die. And they may suffer consequences, we may suffer chastening, but God has rewarded us towards life, towards eternal life. Okay? So, in that sense, it's about yes and no. Augustine said, you know, here I am, I can say what looks like yes, but in reality I'm saying no. So, uh, the sound, I mean, the, the verse that I, uh, Augustine talks about here is in Isaiah. It says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous acts, it's all the good things we do are like filthy rags. Uh, we are all shriveled up like a leaf and like a wind of sins sweep us away. When, when Isaiah says that our good deeds are like filthy rags, that term filthy rags is actually cleaned up a lot. Because what it means is what women used to wear for menstrual rags. So bloody, yucky thing. That's 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 what your good things look like. So yeah, we're we're in good trouble. So along comes John Calvin, and he says 
I agree with Augustine. By the way, Augustine is a big problem. For uh, he's he's the only one of the only saints that's accepted by both Protestantism and Catholicism. Okay, they love both sides love his writings, but he's been a crazy thorn in the flesh for Catholicism because he believes that you need grace to be saved. He doesn't believe that there is this spark in us, and and consequently, he believes that. The only way to salvation is by faith alone. You can't earn it. And so he tries, you know, for, for centuries, until finally the Catholic Church basically said, okay, we're not going to argue about this anymore. It's just going to be a non-issue. We're not going to talk about it. And that was basically one of their edicts. They said they're not going to argue about whether or not it was by faith alone or there was a spark of light in it. We're just not going to talk about it. And that's basically probably too, too uh, plain a version of what actually happened. But that's basically what was said. So Calvin comes along and he says, you know what, I agree. There is no spark of light within a person to say yes to God. That God's grace is required for those who believe. So that they may believe in the first place. So they need God's grace to believe in the first place. As Augustine, Calvin believed in what we call total depravity of humankind. So we believe in total depravity. Um, a tula, the acrostic, that acrostic, uh, was called uh, the tula, was developed to define the five areas of faith that, that uh, Calvin believed about the, the condition of man and you know, what, what grace was. First of all, he said that man was totally depraved. That no man could come to God without God giving him grace to do it. He's dead. Remember we talked about Lazarus. Um, Lazarus was dead. And God said, Jesus said to him, Come on up, Lazarus. By the way, do you know why Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth? Because if he just said, Come forth, the whole cemetery would have <laughs> so he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out. Well, how could he? How could he obey? He was dead. He had to be made, he had to be quickened so that he could hear. And then it says that he, Jesus said, take the death wraps off of him. So, I mean, he was wrapped up like a mummy. You know, they, they would take these strips of cloth and they would start wrapping, and, and as they went around, they would sprinkle. Herbs and flower blossoms in there, and keep doing that, keep doing that, and so that they would cocoon this whole body. <coughs> That's basically probably the condition of, of Lazarus' body. So God enabled him to hear while he was dead, gave him life when he had no life, gave him the ability to obey when he couldn't even obey. And, and to me, that's a pretty good picture of what it looks like when we get saved. You know, one day God said, Wayne, come forth. And I was like, oh my gosh. You know, I said, wait. And he's given me the ability to continue walking. Every step I take inside of Jesus, with Jesus, is because of his grace working in me. And Candy wanted to kill me by then. <laughs> so, okay. Unconditional election. That means that there is nothing, nothing about any one of us 
that, that, that gave God a reason to choose us, to elect us. Nothing. He just, you know, I, I, mean, this, I had a friend who had this horrible nightmare, and he was on an escalator going up in this dream, and then he, he saw all of these young students of his, because he was a teacher, uh, a college teacher, going down, down an escalator. He was waving at him and stuff like that, and they were saying hi to him. And he turned around, and he saw that the down escalator was going into fire. And he said he realized then that he had to be a teacher of the gospel. He had to tell people about Jesus Christ. And he started working with uh, Youth of Christ, I think, it was one of the big ministries. But we're all on the down escalator, okay? And there's, there's nothing that's bringing us up unless God literally takes us off the down escalator and puts us on the Jesus escalator. So, and, and there's nothing about any of us. It's his choice. You know? Um, I'll, I'll leave that there. Limited atonement. Um, Calvin believed that the atonement that Jesus did for sin on the cross was applied only to the people who were alive. In other words, Jesus didn't die for the whole world. He just died for those who were chosen. Okay? A couple of these things I have to tell you, I'm like about a, this, there's this called a five-point tulip. I'm probably three and a half points. So, and, and a lot of people, for a lot of good biblical reasons, agree or disagree on this. So, this is not in stone. Moses didn't come down the mountain with these. Okay? This is what we're trying to develop over the centuries as we look at things. So, he believed in limited atonement because, in his mind, if atonement was for everybody, then everybody would be saved because he's God. Okay? So, he believes that it was only, only given to those who were elected. Irresistible grace, that's the out. Uh, Calvin believed that once God chose you and gave you the grace to believe, you did it. It was just like once God, once Jesus decided Lazarus is coming back to life, he had no choice. He was alive. You know, because God said so. And that's the same thing with, with us. The grace that God gives us is irresistible. Now, everybody doesn't believe that. Some people believe that God's grace is given, but now it's sort of up to you to choose. Okay? Now, we'll talk a little bit about that, more about that a little bit later. And then he also believed in the perseverance of the saints. So it's kind of like, there's a couple ways of looking at this. One way of looking at this is once you're saved, you're always saved. It's eternal. Okay? But it also means that as you go through trials, and you go through tribulations, persecution, injustices for righteousness or for Jesus' name, you will endure, and you will make it through without denial. And that became a big deal during, during the, uh, the times when Christians were being thrown to the lions, because it was there was a lot of people who recanted of their faith, and then once the, the uh, trials were all over, um, they wanted to come back to the church. And so there was a big discussion about that. You know, maybe one day we can talk about that. So any thoughts about, or any comments about the TULIP, or any questions? 
Yes. Yeah. Hey, could you just clarify again the unconditional election? I kind of get the limited atonement. Yeah, so unconditional election means that there is nothing in you that God saw and said, oh, you know what? I just created a lot of games. Okay. This is better, you know? So, yeah, so it was just his choice. There was nothing in okay. the humankind, the human side of the fence, that made us more attractive than anybody else. So they kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, they do. Okay. So, <clears throat> along comes a student of uh, John Calvin, a guy named Jacobus Arminius. And uh, he said, uh, salvation is based on God's foreknowledge or foreloving. Okay? Uh, so he foreknew and foreloved those that he knew or knows will respond in his faith to his grace and the gospel. <clears throat> so this is what he thinks. And it's slight, it seems it's a slight couple degrees off. <clears throat> so Arminius feels that grace is resistible. I can, God can give you the grace and you can re reject it. But God, being God, who knows the future, sees that Joel is going to respond to my grace. He sees that he's going to say yes to my grace. So he predestines to elect him, to protect him, and to bring him to faith when, when you know, it comes to that, that point. And, um, and, and now he's saved. So God foresees someone saying yes and says, because of that, I am going to fashion my predestined uh, path for him in, in my love and in my plan. Okay? <clears throat> so let's, let's just go a little bit. Therefore, people have the possibility of either accepting or rejecting God's grace. So that means that God's grace is not irresistible. Now it's God's grace is resistible. Okay? God's grace is not powerful enough to bring someone to salvation. Uh, is God's grace powerful enough to keep someone saved? That becomes the question. Alright? If it's not powerful enough to save you, you have to kind of like add your faith in response to God's grace, uh, then you have to keep responding in faith to keep your salvation. Alright? So the more your salvation depends on you, the more your eternal security depends on you. Alright? Uh, so that brings up the question, can salvation be lost through future disbelief? Well, the first thing that happened was Arminius was being uh, categorized as a Pelagian. That there was just a little bit of spark of light in you, okay? And Arminius was like, no, I don't believe that at all. I believe that no one could say yes to God without God's grace. But I still believe we're so bad that we could say no to him too. So he still believed it took God's grace to say yes, but believed that our our fallenness was so severe that we could say no to God's grace. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of really trying to explain. You, you kind of grasping some of the stuff that the subtleties here? Okay. So both Arminius and Calvin believed in predestination, which everybody thinks that's you know the problem. 
<clears throat> when you think about predestination, <clears throat> people are automatically like, wait a second, you mean people are predetermined to go to hell? God says, you're going to hell. Well, there's the Bible verse that about you know, Jacob and Esau. And before they were born, God selected one of them. And in that you know, word that he uses, he hates one and loves the other. You know? um, so Arminius, and you know, people of Arminian are like, look over here, you know, and look at what God did. Uh, you know, he didn't choose people. So he believes, they both believe that that people who come to faith are predestined. But they're predestined to be like Christ. They're predetermined to live with God forever. They're predetermined to inherit what Christ inherits. That's what the predestination is about. It's not about, never in the Bible is predestination ever about punishment. That is the normal status for all of us. All of us. And God, by His grace, selects whom He wants. Um, so, um, hope I'm, I hope I'm saying all this right. I don't need to have a, a omissions and errors meeting. <laughs> um, by the way, just before I, I go any further, I just want to say that the last time we got together, one of the last things I talked about was gender. And I was talking about, um, I'm sorry for interjecting this, but I'm going to say this at the beginning. And I, I talked about how God uniquely lets me have a female to represent his image. Then I talked about how God represents himself as father, and Jesus as son, okay? But I have to say that God is spirit. He has no gender, okay? I, I, I want to make sure I get that clear, because I kind of felt like I left the impression that he was male. He decided to manifest himself and reveal himself to us as a father, but he's spirit, so he's... We can't give them each other. Jesus was born, and God manifests himself in a male. It still doesn't make God a male. He's a spirit. Okay? Jesus was male. He was a son. But he did the, he did the Father something to reveal to us the communion type that he wants to have with us, the relationship he wants to have with us as a perfect parent perfect father, caring, protecting, providing parent, and a perfect a, a child that you know, loves and responds to the love of the father perfectly. So that he can show us what it looks like in our terms as human beings. Okay? So I just want to make sure I get that. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. So there's one more thing <coughs> that we should talk about, and that's universalism. Uh, it appeared in America about the time of the revolution and independence, and it professed that there's an ultimate salvation of all. Uh, they quote the passage in Scripture that says, all in Christ will be saved. So, the idea is that they reject eternal damnation as being inconsistent with the love of God. That was Abraham Lincoln for many, many years. He, dis he disavowed the gospel. Okay, he felt that when uh, a loving God could not eternally damn someone who um, uh, who made us who sin, 
know, that it can only be temporary. Um, the problem with that is that there are plenty of scriptures that talks about eternal suffering, eternal fire, uh, talks about the, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, uh, talks about being cast out. Uh, at, but, you know, and there's just too much that shows that there is there is eternal punishment. Now, in my own rationalization, um, I, I, I reject universalism. I think it cheapens the cross. If Jesus died for something that was only temporary, then the cross was not as potent as powerful. Worse, uh, yeah, so it, it's just, if everybody was going to be in heaven, or worse yet, annihilation, there's some universalists just believe in annihilation. That means, well, then why did Jesus die if everybody's just not going to exist afterwards? Why did he go through all that suffering? They're not going to be in any pain. They're not even going to exist. They're going to have no knowledge of themselves. I mean, to me, that's just a complete uh, perversion of Christianity. Right? And just a, a, just a horrible diminishing of what happened on the cross of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Universalism quickly uh, joined or united with Unitarians who rejected the Trinity uh, and along with other Christian Orthodoxy. So what happened is that all these people were coming to America and and they developed this incredible governmental system that rejected all the stuff, the monarchies of the old world. And so a bunch of people just kind of began to say, you know, we need to reject some of the old world religion too. We need to just get rid of the orthodoxy. You know, so there's a universe, we're all going to be saved. You know, and then this whole trinity, we can't figure it out, so there's not really a trinity. I'm simple, oversimplifying it. But basically what they were doing is that they were forming uh, their own faith system based around the government that they were forming. You know, we're a judge. We make rules. You know, um, so uh, interestingly enough, as soon as universalism and, and uh, Unitarianism kind of came together, I call it the UU Church, and kind of came together, God poured out his Holy Spirit on America when we had the second grade. And the church just exploded. It just consumed these, uh, these, this faith system. Alright, so let's just take a look at uh, the Calvinist tulip against uh, Arminius soteriology. And by the way, the tulip was created on Arminius soteriology. It wasn't the other way around. There was no such thing as a tool until our members started talking about what he believes. So, total depravity, total depravity, check, check, they're both clear that. Unconditional election, our uh, members believe in conditional election. God foresees and foreknows and foreloves you because of the fact that he sees that you're going to say yes to his grace. So that's different. Limited atonement on this side. And universal atonement on the other side. Okay. Irresistible grace for Calvin. Ah, resistible grace for Arminius. Perseverance of the saints for Calvin. Perseverance of the saints 
from Arminius. Depends on which Arminian you talk to. Some say yes, some say not so much. It's up to you. So those are some of the differences as I believe them, you know, they present themselves. This is a lot, you guys are doing great. Let's see what time we get there. Let me just go over a couple of words. Predestination. Uh, where God sets forth beforehand and determines beforehand all things according to the counsel of his will. So it's not just people that are that come to faith who are predestined. It's predetermination of his will. I mean, we can read through the book of Revelation and Daniel, we can see future events that he's predetermined. We can see that he is reserving evil people for punishment. You know, we can see all these things. He has a predetermination. So, uh, Ephesians says, In him you are chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Remember, God is a God of will. He's trying to turn us into children of will so that we're firm about the things we believe in, firm in our decision, firm in our prayers. You see there that predestination, again, is about the chosen. It's not about those that are going to the hell. It's always about the people who come to faith. God predestines believers to adoption. Another positive thing about predestination. He predestined us to adoption as sons or daughters through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. By the way, in scripture it will say predetermined to adoption as sons. In the Bible, why does it say sons and daughters? Well, in Roman law, an adopted son was a complete heir. And I don't think that was true of an adopted daughter. So when, when the scripture says adopted son, it's saying that men and women have exactly the same inheritance rights together. One is not greater than the other or less than the other. It, it actually is a significant difference. Okay. <clears throat> um, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son along with our calling, justification, and glorification. <clears throat> so the scripture verse out of Romans says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Uh, and again, <clears throat> Jesus wasn't born to be the first Christian, okay? Firstborn is also a legal status. Okay, and you can see through scripture where the second one got the rights of the first one because it's a legal status, and that's what's being said here. It's not saying that he, that some, he was born, he was, you know, he didn't pre exist. <clears throat> uh, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, those he justified, he also glorified. What is interesting about the words called, justified, glorified? Yeah, you're saying something. What is that? It sounds on your. Yes! It's done! It's not saying that he's those in predestined, he's calling and justifying 
and glorified. It is done in his mind that you are glorified. Look at this guy. He is glorified. Pat, oh my gosh. Not even his glory diminishes your glory. It's past tense for God. He's already done it. As far as he's concerned, done. Done deal. It's happened. Predestination is spoken of God's elect alone. It's never of the reprobate person who are doomed to damnation. <clears throat> Another word, two words I want you to look at are election and foreknowledge. <clears throat> election, as a result of predestination, God elects certain men and women as a sole choice of his will to receive unconditional and effectual grace that brings them to faith in Christ. <clears throat> Romans 9, 10 through 15 says, Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, the father Isaac, yet before the twins were born, had done anything good or bad in order for God's purposes and election might stand, <clears throat> not by works, but by him who calls. She was told the older of a certain number, just as it read Jacob by eleven, and so I have What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. But he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He's God. I mean, it's kind of a hard thing for a person to say, but he's God. He created us. You know? The fact is, is that he mercifully, instead of destroying all of mankind and mankind, he's actually loving and saving some of us. So it's a miracle. Uh, foreknowledge, as a result of his eternal election, God foreloves those he has a covenant relationship with. <coughs> for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be formed in the likeness of the Son, that he, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the foreknowledge leads to foreloving. He knows, he does know who's coming to him because he's selecting this. Now, you know. I just want to say that this, this is this is these are deep needs. It's hard. It's hard to get wrap our head and our hearts around sometimes to realize that God sovereignly elects people. And that's where some of our many stuff comes from. You know, because which they, they try to reason and rationalize and use scripture. I mean it's not just a you know some kind of uh, man-made convention or theology. I mean they do have some sources of scripture. And there are churches that are very good churches and really believe in Jesus Christ that believe on different sides of this fence. So, um, if you want to one day we get together and I can tell you about uh, what part of the tool I believe in. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, I think we're going to get to heaven and Calvinists and Arminians are going to look at each other and go, Oh, we were wrong. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, think about these things. These are provocative things. Think about how they apply to you. You know, when you find yourself in a difficult situation, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, wait a second, God is preordained, predetermined. My course of life, and I'm in this situation, and it's about glorifying. There's something in this difficult time that is not only Conforming you to Christ according to his predestination. But it's 
can't find him is showing his wisdom and his work and his grace in our lives. <clears throat> so there are ramifications that flow out from these, these concepts. And again, the church has been working through this for too long now. Catholics would be considered, I, I read, semi-Pelagians. So they believe that there is this spark of goodness in everybody that can accept and see good and choose good. So, uh, this church is probably leading more towards Calvin. Uh, and then um, uh, there are some churches that, uh, like, uh, uh, I think the church, Church in Christ, no, it's new. Christian churches, like the Christian churches, Clarendon Hills, Christian churches, you know, different communities, their, their, their salvation tends to be more Armenian. So, any comments, thoughts? When I run out of here, going, I think I'm going to just go sit in the cave for a while. And <laughs> yes, uh, I've heard it said that you know, if we take Albinism to an extreme for Adam, yeah. that might as well not witness it. It's all predetermined. You're exactly right. Yeah, yeah, and yet, and yet Paul and Peter sacrificed their lives to do it. You know, I, I, the evangelist that I know of, uh, who's kind of like the size of Dick Hawkins, and kind of like spoke about Billy Graham, and he worked on the streets of New York and survived. Um, but he would say, what you need to do is you need to just, uh, what do you say, you just need to assume that Everyone is chosen, and you got to go out and tell them. You know, and then he says, "Let God figure it out." You know. <clears throat> but yeah, that's that's a that's a common thought. You know, God's in charge. Why do I bother? And then Romans deals with that, that angst between the two. Okay, next week uh, we're going to talk about um, the accomplishment of God's salvation and uh, how He applies it. And I will be here to fill your questions, but Dan Keel is going to be here. So, you know, um, maybe you can pause it and ask questions, or, you know, I'd write down your questions and afterwards you could ask Dan, and he'll be glad to give you what insights he has. Okay, thanks so much, everybody. Uh, I won't see you next week, I don't think, but uh, we'll see you in two weeks. We'll have one more. We'll start looking at when I get back. We'll start looking at the church, and it's the section that's called "We Are the Church." Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.